So welcome back to the Lord's house this morning. This is a leased space with other businesses and tenants, but the scriptures tell us where two or more of us are together in his name that he's with us. So I hope you're glad to be in church. Um, you may have seen me share this on, on Facebook, but we we uh, talked this morning, or rather Missy read this morning, a scripture from Psalm 1 that talks about delighting in the word of God, and we read the word to our our children this last week, I was listening in to Levi reading the miles and I got so excited. I kind of started getting emotional because he was reading about Peter. And I was like, yes, finally, you know, our kids are sharing the Bible with each other and I'm, I'm continuing to listen and it gets a little foggy. And then the next paragraph he starts and says, and then Spider-Man went and did this and that and the other. And I'm like, oh, they're studying Peter Parker, apparently not Peter, the apostle. So we've started a book written by Jesus' little brother. It'll be real interesting uh, to read. It would be, I should say, real interesting to read a book that Miles uh, would later write in his adult life about Levi. That's essentially what's, uh, what we have here. Miles will have been there before Levi enters middle school, high school, college, um, gets married, likewise as Jesus' little brother, James, uh, was there to watch Jesus grow, to watch him learn, to see him tempted, uh, to see him overcome suffering and even death itself. And as we looked in depth the past two Sundays at Jesus' family, we saw James move from unbelief to belief, from skeptic to pastor. Um, and what James showed us is that Jesus endured not only easy days, but also hard days. Did Jesus have joy? Absolutely. But he also had much pain in his life. And we're going to talk about pain and disappointment and difficulty this morning. So if you have your Bible with you, open to James chapter 1, verse 1. James opened, if you'll remember, by saying, hello, basically, my name's James, I'm a servant of Jesus and of his people. And then in verse 2, he starts by telling us about difficult days, difficult days. This is where the brother of Jesus starts. He starts by telling you and I, as Christians, that Christianity works the most when you and I need Jesus the most. That's when he works. And he says, paraphrased, Christianity works when you need it most. Jesus works when you need him most because there are days, again, that are difficult and we need to lean into Jesus Christ. Sometimes we tell people, hey, give your life to Christ and you're going to go to heaven and it's going to be awesome. And we forget about all the stuff in the middle that is life. Because life continues, this side of heaven before we get there, and it's tough, and it's anguishing at times. I'm 100% convinced that the Christian life is the best life there is. That doesn't mean that it's the easiest life. It does not mean that. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. In fact, oftentimes the closer we get to Jesus, the more temptation we have. The closer we get to Jesus, the more resistance we encounter from the evil one. Things get hairy oftentimes when we draw close to the Lord. So James, the brother of Jesus, I hope you will see this morning, is a realistic man. 
He's not going to present this with rose-colored glasses on. Um, he's going to tell us how it is, and we'll begin by reading in verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So our theme today is that of trials. Everybody say trials. We all have trials. Trials of different kinds, different shapes. A trial is a tough season. A trial is a rough patch. A trial is a time where emotions are elevated and tempers flare and you need to know uh, before we discover what it means to go through trials what it doesn't mean to be a Christian going through trials here's what it does not mean when you're walking through a proverbial storm it does not mean that God is punishing you That's not what it means. Can it feel that way? Of course it can feel that way. But you need to know God is not paying you back. God has already punished who? His son, Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered for us in our place. Um, God doesn't need to send two people to jail for the same crime. He already did that with Jesus. That would be unjust. Do we reap what we sow in life? Oftentimes we do. There's this thing called the law of natural what? Consequences. Where things do come back on our head. Do our sins have implications? Of course they do. But is God punishing us? No, he is not. Second, by the way, believe that. Please believe that. It changes things. It changes the perception of your trials. Second, God has failed or abandoned you. Doesn't mean that when you go through a trial. That's a lie of Satan. It comes from the pit of hell itself. Lord, you said you love me. It sure doesn't feel that way. You must have failed me. We think. How many of you have ever looked over the fence? Um, We're talking about figuratively, although you might have a literal fence between you and your neighbor. And and saw how happy they are. And saw how it appears to be a ray of sunshine is falling through the clouds right on top of their home, but not on, on your home. And you feel God's promises have come true in their quarter of an acre patch, but not on your quarter of an acre patch. And we need to know, as people who are maturing in the faith, that God has not left us. That's not the way that he operates. He doesn't do that. He's not forsaken us. Nothing we read in the scriptures can separate us from his love. He said he would always, is one of the last things he said before he left earth, he'll always be with us. 
He promised to be with us until the end of the age. So you're not an, an orphan. You have a loving Father in heaven who has not abandoned you. Remember that. Commit that to memory. Commit that to understanding. Commit to that in, in principle. A third one. God, God is acting evil toward you. Sometimes we think that's the case when we're going through trial. Nothing that comes from God is evil. We sang this morning that he's good. That's all he is. God is not evil. Um, We look at this in, in Esther. Not everything happens for a what? reason. That's not true. Quit saying it. It just doesn't add up. God doesn't author bad things that happen to people. There are things that grieve the heart of God. There are things that make him, there were things that made Jesus weep. Even he cried when he looked down and saw Jerusalem in its folly. He cried when he realized his friend Lazarus was, was dead. God is only good. Only good. He's not evil. It may feel that way, but that's not correct. Next, trials do not mean that. So we've said they do not mean God's punishing you. They do not mean God's failed or abandoning you. They do not mean God's acting in evil toward you. Fourth, they do not mean that God will make everything better. They don't mean that. It's important to have a Christianity that's biblical and not a Christianity that's like a greeting card. Because life is not like a greeting card. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. If yours is, like, let's compare notes. God promises not that things will change. He promises that you and I can change. God doesn't say, life's hard, just wait around a while, and everything's going to grow sunny. God says, for, for better or for worse, I'm going to be there with you and give you strength to in, endure. Things may, in fact, get what? Things may get worse. We're not promised they'll get easier. We're not promised God will make everything better. We're promised he'll be with us. Fifth, God will answer every question of yours. That's not what our trials teach us. God doesn't answer every question. I had this discussion with someone this week who's really just struggling with physical sickness. My grandmother devout follower of the Lord um, took on rheumatoid arthritis at, I believe it was age 16, and lived the rest of her life with debilitating pain. Loved the Lord. Prayed for healing. Prayed for other people. Turned into this bedridden saint in her old age that would just spend time not asking for things for her, but for for the grandkids, for people at church, for friends, for the lost. God will not 
answer every question. God says live by faith, not by what? By sight. The Apostle Paul said something similar. He said we don't, we don't see in, in full or know in full. We know in what? We know in part. We see through a dimly lit glass. So if that's what God doesn't say about our trials, then let's get to some things that God does say about our trials. And that's what we read this morning in James. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Uh, The scripture that I memorized as a young man uh, used the word perseverance. You're going to see that word twice here, steadfastness, and then it says it again. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's three things God does say about trials. First, you'll have them. You'll have trials. It's not an if, it's a when. All of us are going to have them. James 1, 2, again, doesn't say maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, as if we're en route to Vegas or we're, we're betting on March Madness trying to figure out what the over and under is. It says 100% you can bet that you'll experience trials. You will. Mature Christians, don't be shocked by it. New Christians, don't be shocked by it. And then we see, second, that God says this in this passage through the little brother of Jesus about trials, that trials become tests and trials become opportunities. Life is filled with tests. And whether we like it or not, trials do become tests for us now again not everything happens for a reason god did not send a trial your way to be a test but ultimately we're still responsible for how we react to the trials that we go through and therefore trials become opportunities they're opportunities to prove who we are in jesus they become tests how we react is under our control is it not not what happens to us but how we react to it you and your spouse um, will find yourself in a variety of predicaments actually that's the next point you'll get various kinds of trials sometimes they'll be financial sometimes they'll be emotional physical mental Behavioral, if you have children. Vocational. What other all have we not mentioned? James said himself, there's trials of various kinds. You know that what that means? It means you may not know where it's coming from next. It means they surprise us. It means a trial could hit any aspect of your life. It means that you may come through a, a, a rough patch in a relationship, but then you have something hit you financially. Boom, another trial. 
And here's the most important principle. I heard a quote that I, uh, I don't even know who said it, but it's a new favorite of mine. I don't know where it came from originally, but this is what it said. I read this in someone's values, uh, this businessman. Comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. Um, a wise friend once told me, Zach, someone will always shoot bigger bucks than you. Always. And you will always shoot bigger bucks than someone else. That's just the way life goes. And you need, Zach, to be thankful for what you have and for every opportunity. How true it is. Especially when we're comparing trials. Because we do that. Our trials don't escape from our comparisons. We look at somebody and we say, man, why is their life perfect all the time? Man, why does so-and-so have such a, such a tough go at things? In one case, it produces pity. In the latter case, it produces pride. It's not fair for us to judge what somebody else is going through and just say, that's just such a little trial. Why are they so worried about that? I mean, isn't it true that it could be a bigger deal for them? than it is in your perception of what they're going through? I mean, it's very true. Conversely, um, one person may have this huge emotional bucket for all kinds of trauma and drama and be able to, to plow through it. Another person may be laying in a fetal position on the floor when the dishwasher breaks. I mean, this is just we have different tolerances don't we? Our capacities are different. We're different. Our trials are different. So James begins by telling us trials are, um, you're going to have them. And, and he says basically they produce two things when a person endures them righteously in a way that honors God. First, they produce steadfastness. And second, they produce maturity. What does that mean? Steadfastness means endurance. It means perseverance. This is the ability to weather the storm. This is making it through. This is not giving up. This is not giving in. The Bible uses the phrase, almost a military phrase, stand firm or hold your post. James is telling us if we receive our trials as opportunities, if we see them that way, It'll produce in us steadfastness, and the steadfastness will produce in us maturity. In other words, we become more godly, more like Jesus, when our trials transform us, when they change us. How many of you want to be more like Jesus? How many of you want to have more trials? The funny thing is, they're the same question. The text is saying you can't be buff without working out. You can't be smart without reading books. You can't mature without experiencing hardship. So if you have a hard relationship, 
and you quit, and then you have another hard relationship, and you quit, and then you have a hard job, and you quit, and then you have another hard job, and you quit, and then you come to church and get in a tiff with somebody, and quit, and then you go to another church and don't like something the pastor says, and quit, you know what you don't do? You don't mature. Because you don't have steadfastness. Paul would later say it this way, perseverance produces character. It changes us on the inside. See, your godliness doesn't arrive when you don't have problems. Your godliness comes through the problems. Problems aren't your obstacles to get over. They're your opportunities to take advantage of. And James says, when you're maturing in your problems, you can consider it all joy. You can count it all as joy. We often think that joy is the same thing as happiness. That's not what he's saying. And I make this, I, I, I consider them similar in my head oftentimes. But there is a difference, and it's subtle. Um, by the way, I think happiness is great. Would you agree? Happiness is a wonderful thing. I like happiness. Happiness, though, is due to your circumstances. Happiness comes when things are going well. When your boss says, you're getting a raise, that makes you what? Happy. And when the doctor says, you have a clean bill of health, what does that make you? It makes you happy. We love happiness at the Mill Church. I hope this space is, is full of it. We are pro-happiness, just to be clear. But what happens when your boss says you're fired? What happens when your boss says there's layoffs in the near future? What happens when the doctor says you're sick? What happens when a spouse of decades says, I don't want to be married anymore? These are the moments where not happiness, but joy come into play. Joy isn't due to your circumstance. Joy is in spite of your circumstance. In the book of Hebrews, we read that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Uh, I don't know about you. I can't think of anything less joyful than a crucifixion. It's like thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to see one. I don't want to be involved with one. I don't want to be crucified. Jesus sweated prior to that literal drops of blood. That's not happiness, right? That's being distraught. And yet the Bible says Jesus had joy. Joy is the peace that surpasses our understanding. Joy is unusual. Joy doesn't add up logically. And James tells us, as it was with my older brother on the cross, so may it be with all of you. You can have joy when you don't have happiness. You know, I think of Tom and Nicole, who I miss dearly, by the way. It didn't make me happy 
to learn that they were leaving the mill church and going on the mission field. Can I just be honest? It didn't make me happy. But you know what? Deep down, it did make me joyful. I mean it sincerely. I just had joy well up in my heart because I knew that was their kingdom purpose. I wasn't happy because it wasn't convenient for me. But I was joyful for the church of God, the church with a big C. Joy runs deeper. James' first main point is that sometimes life is hard. His second main point, we sang it this morning, God is always good. James 1, 5 through 8, if any of you lacks wisdom, let's just stop there. How many of you lack wisdom? Okay, here's the truth. If you didn't raise your hand, you really lack wisdom because you're unwilling to admit that you're short on it. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. That's a problem we can cling to. How many of you get in spots where as a, as a father, as a spouse, as a manager, as somebody who's dutifully employed by someone else and responsible for people, how many of you say, I get in situations where I don't know how to get out of them. I don't know the right answers to all of my own questions. I just get confused. I need some advice. I need some wisdom. This is what God promises to give to us. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He that does not ask with faith that he'll receive the wisdom that he or she is asking for. James, like 90% of today's Christian music on 89Q, uses a water analogy. Have you noticed that? (laughs) All the songs are about waves and oceans, right? And it's a great analogy. That's why it's used so much. He uses the analogy of a storm. And, And James wants our imagination to set sail out to see. And what happens in a storm, of course, is that clouds roll in. And if you're on the water, thank goodness I have never been in a storm on a boat because it's one of the things along with drowning that I am absolutely terrified of. Like thanks, but no thanks. You couldn't pay me enough. I love fishing and I wouldn't want to be on a boat in a storm. And so this is the illustration that he gives. And, and it gets dark, and you can't see land. You can't see land. Just, imagine it worse without GPS and navigation, like back in the day. These maritimers with, with no compass except the map of the skies. And all of a sudden, things become unsafe. All of a sudden, things become volatile, even violent. And it feels out of control. It feels anxious. Maybe you're in a situation like that, like he's describing right now. You just feel like things, you don't have your sea legs underneath you. You feel disoriented. You feel vertigo coming in. 
And, and maybe you're just watching the clouds come, and James is saying, when that happens, we need to ask God for wisdom. Not knowledge. The two things are completely different. I hope this is something that you'll pause it and never forget. Knowledge and wisdom are different. They're not the same things. Knowledge is great, but it's not enough when you're navigating through life. Knowledge is truth. That's what knowledge is. Wisdom is knowing what to do with the truth that you have. That's the difference. Knowledge gives us information. Wisdom provides transformation or change with the knowledge that we acquire. Knowledge tells us what to believe. Wisdom tells us how to act with what we believe. How many of you know brilliant people, brilliant people who make dumb decisions? What James is telling us here is that God, through the Holy Spirit, wants to give his people supernatural wisdom to navigate life if we ask for it, and not only if we ask for it, but if we believe that we'll receive it. This is where the the teaching of Scripture is unique. Because this isn't about self-actualization. It's not about self-help. It's not about embettering ourselves. It's about acknowledging helplessness and asking God to step in where, where we fall short. And he says, if you lack it, ask me, and I'll give it, what's the word he uses? Generously. Church, God has the heart of a father. Sometimes that word conjures up bad memories for those who didn't have a good dad, and I hope you're able to disconnect that if that's the case, because God is a great father. He wants to help his kids. If we come to him in humility, in our storms, in our trials, he will respond. James tells us when we don't know what to do, we can talk to God, we can ask him for help, and he'll give it in abundance if, if we believe he will. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord. Just ask God that you would give us wisdom. Lord, I don't have any idea. You never know what someone's going through until you ask them. And and Lord, I just have no idea what people in this room may or may not be going through. Lord, this could be the storm of a lifetime right now that someone is sailing in. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give them the wisdom they need to make great choices supernaturally. 
Lord, you promise that you'll give us the gift if you, if we ask and believe that we'll receive it. Lord, I just pray as we start to think about construction on our property and breaking ground in a year from now, Lord, I just pray that you'd give us wisdom. Lord, we need it. We just need to to make the right decisions and to have the the prudence necessary and 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 the commitment necessary to to finish strong and to build what we need and to have room for growth but not to build too large and Lord all these variables and just pray Lord that you'd guide us give us divine wisdom We ask this personally too. And we just trust, Lord, that you will give it. We consider it joy. In Jesus' name, amen.